Well, the peace of Christ be with you all. My name is Brad Cheney, if we haven't met before. Uh, we, we're in a sermon series going through the life of David. Today, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's written as chapter 8 in your bulletin, but it's actually chapter 7. Uh, the lengthy passage we're about to read, while it's, it's definitely not the most dramatic portion of the David story, if we were to select three to five of the most important sections of all of the Old Testament, I mean, this would be it. This would be in that. It's that central. Um, Up to this point in world history, the way that God had been communicating with mankind was through what? It was the Abrahamic covenant. It was the Noahic covenant. It was the Mosaic covenant through these um, you know, various covenant administrations. And now, Second Samuel 7, God introduces something entirely new, that going forward, the way the Lord will deal with mankind is through a king, and specifically through the seed of David, the offspring of David, um, who reigns upon an eternal throne and, and whom we just confessed is sitting at the right hand of the Father on that throne. So let's read it. 2 Samuel 7, 1, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to bring me, to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be the ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your seed to succeed you, your offspring, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. You know, this is uh, obviously referring to Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so Solomon, did he have a forever kingdom? As is customary in the Bible, the way prophecy oftentimes works is, you know, a, a near event will be telescoped with a distant event And so we have both Solomon and the one greater than Solomon spoken about here, um, the eternal throne, Jesus Christ, the eternal kingdom. Verse 14, 
I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Um, we're always trying, we've been trying to look at echoes of either Christ or other figures in the David story. And this is an echo of Moses. Uh, what does it mean to go in and sit before the Lord? Well, if you recall from last week, the ark of God was, was sitting in a tent that David had, uh, had erected. And uh, I mean, who was allowed to go into the, the tent of meeting and be before the Lord, before the ark? other than Moses. Uh, And so here we have one who is a a prophet and a king. Uh, That's the echo. Uh, He sat before the Lord and he said, verse 18, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you've redeemed from Egypt? You have established your people as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name, your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, so your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What David was... Uh, planning to do here, what he desired to do here, was of a fairly common thing among kings of the ancient Near East. When a king came to his throne, it was customary for that king to build a temple, a house for their god, to kind of thank them, and, um, and maybe to get in the god's good graces a little bit, to make the god happy enough that then the god would in return uh, promise you know, a great dynasty to the king, a great kingship, a, a great kingdom. Uh, and an example of this um, 
I think it might have been King Tut, but it was one of the pharaohs. Uh, they built a big temple for Amun-Re, the Egyptian god, and then Amun-Re re- replied to this through an Egyptian oracle and said, in essence, because the temple you made for me was so nice, uh, I am going to grant you, King Tut, a kingdom, quote, that spans the globe and lasts for millions of years. Uh, and then, if you, if you know the story, King Tut was assassinated at, at the age of 19. <laughs> and so, yeah, he probably wanted his money back. <laughs> but this was the typical order of things. King builds temple for God. Beauty of temple makes God famous. God thanks King by giving him a strong and everlasting kingdom. You see what's going on here, don't you? Like, God completely rejects that. He, he, he reverses the order. And this, I mean, you study human history, this has been the order of things forever, but he rejects it. So here we have David. He's living in a house, it says, with cedar paneling. If you could, just a moment, imagine how incredibly fragrant that would be to live in a house that's paneled with cedar. Uh, Incredibly beautiful. And he feels the dissonance of this. Uh, And he calls Nathan the prophet to him, who's kind of like uh, David's own pastor. And he says, I want to build a house for God. And Nathan responds like any pastor does when someone offers to contribute to the building fund. He says, go for it. Go for it. And then but the Lord visits Nathan. It's almost as if Nathan didn't even pray about it. It's just like, we'll take that check. You know, we'll take that donation. But then the Lord visits him that night. And there's almost a playfulness in the dialogue that follows. The Lord says, David, do you, are you the one who's going to build me a house? Do you think I'm worried about my accommodations? And what God says is, if anything, I'm worried about Israel's accommodations. If you notice in that early section, there's a great deal of talk about, you know, God wants to settle his people and give them rest from all of their enemies before he himself rests in a temple. And he says, and, and, then, and then if you know anything about the, the Solomonic um, kingdom, that's exactly what happens. I mean, Solomon is extremely successful in beating back Israel's enemies and giving them rest. And so he's like, you think you're going to build me a house? No. I'm going to build you one. Now, obviously, God is not talking about a physical building. He's talking about a a, a dynastic kingship. He says to David, I promise to make your seed, your offspring, a a dynastic kingship that that is greater than anything the world has yet seen. And um, if you talk to historians who look at David's reign— it, it's actually a historical anomaly. So from the moment of David's ascension in 1000 BC to the fall of the city of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 BC, we're talking about a kingship that lasted about a little over 400 years. 400 years is a historical, a complete historical anomaly. Like you even go back to um, the, the great Egyptian um, kingships and, and dynasties, the, the longest Egyptian dynasty was only 250 years. Now, there was, there's, it's, it's really, it's remarkable. Um, but it's not forever. Uh, and here God goes on. He says, 
Solomon will be next in line. Uh, Solomon will be a king who is great in many respects and a terrible king in other respects. But even if Solomon or his offspring, uh, if they commit injustice and unfaithfulness, I will discipline them, but I will never take away the line again. Uh, I will never do to you what I did to Saul. There, there will be a Davidic king forever, forever. Which, you know, that really does pose a challenge for Judaism, does it not? So when the Israelites come back and they rebuild the temple, when they return from Babylon to the promised land, they rebuild the temple. Who was the Davidic king who ruled over Israel on that day? Yeah, there wasn't one. When you go to Tel Aviv uh, on a business trip this weekend, who's the king of Israel? There isn't one. How do we get this forever king? Uh, I mean, what we would say, certainly from a Christian perspective, is the king, he, the Davidic line doesn't resurface until Jesus, the son of God, the son of David, reenters the city of Jerusalem in 30 A.D., and that is how it's fulfilled. Well, the rest of the chapter, verses 18 through 29, I, I tried to read it in such a way, kind of, there was, hopefully it sounded like there was a breathlessness about the prayer. Because really, David, his response to this, he's, he's blown away by this grace. I mean, you sense it, don't you? Like, he, he, he almost has goosebumps. He's nearly incredulous that the Lord has made such promises to him. And the Lord has done this, he says, simply because the Lord wanted to do it. It takes his breath away. He says, well, what can David, your servant, say to all of this? Uh, you, you almost, in verse 20, let's look at it. For what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. Uh, there's, a, there's almost a helplessness in David's praise. Uh, and um, yeah, that's, like when you really taste grace, you know, that's how you respond. Um, and then he goes on. He, he marvels at how God has been gracious to Israel. And then the last of this, the prayer, verses 27 through 29, he, he simply says, Lord, you promised this, so please do this. He prays the promises back to God and asks God, you know, do, it, do, do unto me as you have promised that you would do. And really, that's the foundation of all the prayer. That's what we do in our prayers is we pray back the promises to God. Uh, okay, I know that that's a pretty quick overview of the passage. And there's so, much, ah, there's so much here that I know that I'm not covering. But I wanted to get to this point. What can we take away from 2 Samuel chapter 7? Um, Three things, and, and the way I'd like to do this is just address three different people who are in the room this morning and give you each something that I think may be helpful for taking away. Uh, the first group of people, number one, uh, I, Joe already talked to you in the service. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and maybe you're exploring Christianity, maybe you're at least open to Christianity, um, consider this. Consider this. When Marco Polo traveled from Europe all the way to Asia in the 13th century. You know, Marco Polo was not the very first um, explorer to do so. 
but he was definitely the most famous explorer to do, for doing so. And the reason he was so famous was why? Yeah, because he wrote the, or the, was written the, the Travels of Marco Polo. That's how the expedition uh, became um, w- you know, widely known. And one of the things he tells us in the Travels of Marco Polo is he set out on this journey to discover a, a unique creature. A, a creature that had, at least as far as he knew, never had been seen before. Do you know what the creature was that Marco Polo was, uh, the merchant explorer was looking for? Anybody? He was looking for unicorns. <laughs> Indeed. He had been taught about unicorns, and he was looking for them. And, and, and he found them on his way home in Java. Marco Polo found the fantastic beasts, and he writes about them in, in, in his book. The, the only catch is he's, a very, he's an honest man, and so he admits, as he's writing about them, he said, these unicorns I found are not exactly as I was taught. <laughs> They are not white, but they are black. They do not have silky smooth hair. They have pelts like buffaloes. Uh, Their horns, too, are not white, but they're black. Their tongues are spiky. Their heads look like wild boars. And their hooves are as big as elephants. But they are unicorns. (laughs) And what what, what was it that Marco Polo found? Yes, he discovered the rhinoceros. And an epistemological question arises from this. Why were these unicorns and not rhinoceroses? Why was this a unicorn and not a new species that I have discovered? And it's very simple. Um, you know, uh, psychologists, you know, cognitive scientists will tell you that Marco Polo went into his expedition, as we all do, with a cognitive model that was looking for something, and when he found that something, it was it, even if it wasn't it. And what you have to understand is that, I mean, if you do any real research into history, the cognitive model that human beings have had for millennia about man's relationship with God is it's always, what is man going to do to give God? Like, what, what, do I need to, what do I need to build? What do I need to offer? What do I need to sacrifice? What do I need, what do I need to obey? That every, basically every religion is predicated on that cognitive model. Um, it's like, how high do I have to jump? What do I have to do? And we pastors, we Christian pastors have discovered this, that we can stand in the pulpit week after week and say, the free gift of God free gift of God is eternal life and his son Jesus Christ. But it will be filtered through people's cognitive model and they'll be like, all right, what do I have to do? (laughs) Um, And what is so remarkable about this passage is, is God is just, he's rejecting that model. He's saying it's all of grace. It's all gift. Uh, what I love about the passage is it all comes in response to David saying, trying to figure out, what do I need to build for God? And God comes and says, David, you don't have to give me anything. Let me give you something. 
Let me give humanity something. My only begotten son who will sit on an eternal throne. And so that's what I'm going to say to you. Maybe your cognitive picture of Christianity is largely do. But first and foremost, you must receive. I mean, you've heard of John 3.16 before. You know, God is first and foremost a giver. And, and it must be received. And those are the terms that God wants to meet you on. And I just would really like you to think more deeply about that. Those are the terms that God wants to meet you on. He wants you to come to receive. All right, number two. The second group of people I like to speak with are those who are, who are, are here parents. You have younger children. Um, something we, we've tried to emphasize more and more here at All Saints is the use of catechism. Catechism is a great way to teach your children the fundamental you know, doctrines of our faith. And so this year in our junior high class that I'm teaching, uh, they're memorizing the New City Catechism. And if they finish the first third of the New City Catechism by the end of the year, then they're going to do a big party in Shindig. And then I think we're trying to get the high school students to do the same, to memorize it. Um, but if you're not familiar with catechism, very simple. It's just a question and answer format by which you... You get, you learn what it is that we ought to believe. And what it is we ought to believe is a very good thing to teach our children. The problem is they need more than that. They actually need why it is I believe such and such a thing. For example, if I were to ask the students in my junior high class, what is a unicorn? A unicorn is a white horse-like creature with silky smooth hair and a large horn on its forehead. And then I were to ask them question number two of the New City Catechism, what is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his goodness and glory, his power and perfection, his wisdom and justice and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. And then if I were to ask a third question— how do you know that? How do you know that God is not like a unicorn? I can tell you what would happen. I should have done it this morning as an experiment. But you'll get a lot of puzzled looks back. Like, well, how, how do I know that? Why do I believe that? Um, you know, they've grown up in a Christian home. They, God has always been a reality for them. That maybe there's never been a day in their life that they didn't believe that God exists. And so they've never actually had to examine the reasons they have for believing, you know, doctrine X, Y, or Z. And so here's, in addition to teaching our children what to believe, we must train them to understand why they believe it. And so here's what I'd like you to do, parents. If your son and daughter, next time your son or daughter says, God is a trinity, I want you to respond with, why do you believe that? The Bible is God's word. If your daughter says that to you, how do you know that? Jesus is the son of God. Um, Jesus is the, the son of David who occupies an eternal throne Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's what this passage is all about. How do you know that that's not a unicorn idea? And like press them in, into really wrestling with this. 
Because if they have an unexamined faith where they've just taken it all for granted, I mean, we all know when they get out into the world and that, and that faith is pressed uh, and challenged, it, it may not stand up. I'll ask you, so why is Jesus at the right hand of the Father on an eternal throne? Why is that not a unicorn idea? Why do you believe that? Why do you affirm that in the Apostles' Creed? What's your good reason for holding to that belief? And I hope that your answer will in some way focus on the historical reliability of the cross and the resurrection of the Son. But those are conversations that we should be having in our homes. I hope we're having in our homes. And so that's what I want you to take away from this passage. Number three, the final group of people, uh, those of us who have a friend or a colleague whom we may work with, maybe God has been tugging at your heart that you ought to speak about Christ to them. Um, They're not a Christian, but you've had this nagging suspicion, I really ought to say something. Uh, let me give you an example of this. I, I have baseball in the brain right now. I, I, I always have baseball in the brain. But uh, some of you know that it's the Major League Baseball playoffs. And one of my favorite teams, the Washington Nationals, is playing up against one of, maybe probably my favorite player in all the Major League ba- Baseball, a first baseman for the St. Louis Cardinals, number 46, Paul Goldschmidt. If you know anything about Paul Goldschmidt, uh, he's, a, he's a very classy guy. He plays the game the right way. Well, a friend, knowing my af- affection and affinity for Paul Goldschmidt, sent me a video that was on YouTube. It was released on October the 1st. I guess they did it, it to coincide with the place where they are in the playoff. But it's an interview with Paul Goldschmidt about, well, let's listen. <laughs> When I started out in high school, I wasn't even the best player on my team. But the next year, I was a little bit better, and a little bit better after that. And that's kind of the story of my baseball career. I work extremely hard to get a little bit better, a little bit better. So Paul Goldschmidt, he he played college ball at Texas State University. You know, not... We have a few Texans in here who would know that, where that is. Is it, is it San Marcos, Texas? Yes, San Marcos. But I mean, most Idahoans would not know Texas State. You know, it's, it's not the top upper echelon of college baseball. And then he was drafted by the Arizona Diamondbacks in the 49th round of, of the Major League Baseball draft. He says, so I got the opportunity to pay for a chunk of my college education And I took that opportunity and I worked harder. And then in college, I got an opportunity to play professionally. And I took that opportunity and I I worked harder. It's really the story of a man who has a tireless work ethic, who just keeps climbing the ladder of success. I mean, to the point where he was, at least two years ago, the best first baseman in all of Major League Baseball. But here's where the key is. I think back, there were coaches who, who maybe talked about their faith in Jesus and in God to me, but yeah, I, I really wasn't wanting to hear it. I either thought that there was no God or, you know, if, if there is a God, I'll figure it out later. I, it was not a top priority for me. Commentary. I think that that's where most Americans are at today. 
they're, they're, they're just fairly agnostic on the God question, but they don't care. It just, it's not a priority for me. I'll, I, if it is, I'll, I'll figure it out later. Well, back in 2011, I was in double-A baseball in Mobile, Alabama, playing for the Mobile Bay Bears, an affiliate with the Arizona Diamondbacks, and our manager was Turner Ward. Uh, Turner and I would go to the batting cage, and you know, I like to hit early before games, so we'd take 50 to 60 swings and work on my swing, and then we would sit there for 20 to 30 minutes and just talk about life. And I, one day I asked Turner the question, Turner, what do I need to get better? To, what do I need to do to, get, to do better? And he said, well, if you give me a couple of weeks, I'll tell you. And I thought, is there that much stuff? <laughs> Turner was very open with his faith and his beliefs, and he, he didn't push it on me at all. But of course, I started asking him about the reasons he lives his life a certain way and why he believes something different than I did. Um, the first time I read anything in the Bible with him was we started reading the book of Proverbs. And I just think, you know, whether you're a believer or not, there's so much truth in those sayings and, and the Proverbs. And that's, you know, probably the first time when my mind was open to what the Bible says. And I was like, maybe it's not a lie. I started asking questions and getting answers and just kind of wanted then to explore more and more. And that's where my story of knowing Jesus starts. I think my Christian friends were very open uh, about their mistakes and even their vulnerabilities, which then allowed me to kind of eventually do the same thing. Uh, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm, I'm making mistakes all the time. But the Bible talks about and Jesus talks about how none of us can be perfect and that's why we need him. Now, I mean, when, here I just described a guy who is a self-made man, you know, who's worked his way to the top by just the grit of his work ethic and determination. The light bulb goes on, and he realized, I, I can't be perfect, and that's why I need him. And he says, I mean, I guess that's where I'm at today. Now, Paul Goldschmidt is not going to win any awards for the greatest orator. Um, he's not going to win awards for the best public speaker, nor does he give us any deep philosophical reflections on the faith. He's kind of a normal guy with an uncanny ability to hit fastballs. But there is much to admire in that interview. Um, and here's what I admire. I admire Turner Ward taking the time to cultivate a relationship with an employee that's a real relationship that goes beyond work. Uh, I admire uh, Turner Ward for being, having the courage to speak up about his faith. And, and even the presence of mind, when that question was posed, so what do I need to do to get better? To, to have just kind of the perfect response in that moment. I'm sure Ward didn't plan it that way. It was given to him by the Holy Spirit. But he spoke up and he said, give, give me a couple weeks and I'll show you. Um, I admire the fact that he took him to a book of the Bible. I mean, how many of us have ever taken a non-Christian colleague to Proverbs and had a conversation around that? But that's where he went. And it, and it was perfect for a guy like Paul Goldschmidt. Um, and these are all things, these are all things that you can do. You can do. They're not, they're not hard things. 
The thing I most appreciate about it is at the very end of the video, and these, these are the, the way they do the spots. This isn't the first um, celebrity Christian video. There's several of them. Um, Lecrae has one and uh, quite a few of them. But he looks at the camera and he says, my name is Paul Goldschmidt. I am second. And that, I think, is one of the most beautiful ways to describe the Christian life. Isn't isn't that what you would want to describe you? You know, my name is Brad Cheney, and I am second. Because Christ is first. And if Christ is first, if he really is the treasure, friends, if he really is the pearl of greatest price, if he really is the king who is seated on an eternal throne and who is coming back to bring his kingdom, then we will share him with other people, won't we not? We will speak about him. We must. Yes, he is the house that he built. Christ is the house that God built for David. Christ is the king Uh, And Christ is a giver of eternal life for us and for everyone else. Amen.